Welcome to American Building, a weekly recorded show whose mission is to share an alternative perspective of what we build in America and why. Together, we discover how the work of the real estate industry connects to every American. In season two, we focused on how buildings changed as a result of the pandemic. In this season, we're revisiting conversations from previous seasons to see where Americans put their heads down at night. Together, we will discover the many definitions of home across the New York City metropolitan area, which includes over 23 million Americans. Each week, we'll visit a new building and explore complex and confusing issues related to housing access to see what they can teach us about ourselves and our country. We'll meet those who work to develop in thoughtful and impactful ways, who build neighborhoods to be more sustainable, affordable, accessible, or inclusive, who labor to create thriving communities and transform the lives of generations to come. Through their stories, we will humanize often polarizing topics. Profound, surprising, and hilarious, this show is for developers and builders with boots on the ground, for innovators trying to find ways to improve our industry, for the policymakers and public employees, and for any person who has walked by a building and wondered why. And now your host, award-winning architect turned developer and startup founder, Atif Khadr, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Khadr. I'm the founder of Commonplace. Join me as I take a drive by the skylines and strip malls, crosswalks and rail crossings, balconies, buildings, and boroughs to discover a new generation of housing. Let's build common ground. In this episode, you will learn about the federal benchmark of rent relative to income, how our country has performed against that metric over time, and what exactly the state of renting in America is today. So the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, called HUD, uses the benchmark that renters should spend no more than 30% of their income on rent. That allows room for food, travel, healthcare, education, other living expenses, and savings for a rainy day. In an article last month for The Nation that is included in the show notes, writer Rebecca Gordon lays out what rent often includes besides actual rent. That includes things like application fees, move-in fees, security deposits, and other select fees. The costs of rent, not including these rent-related costs, relative to income has been rising since the 1980s and has been sharply rising since the global financial crisis. In New York City, the median rent increased by over 31% in the 2010s, but the median income during that time increased 16%, according to data collected by StreetEasy and the Federal Reserve. The federal government doesn't offer tax benefits like it does to homeowners through the mortgage interest deduction, which, if a similar deduction for home expenses existed for renters, 
it would help offset some of that growing gap between rent and income. Gordon traces the history of other tax policies, social welfare spending cuts, and failed housing policies under Reagan and succeeding presidential administrations that contributed to the situation that we're in now for renters. How do we summarize the state of this rental market today? This year was the first that, according to Moody's, the median renter is rent burdened in the United States. That means spending more than 30% on rent. For comparison, that number was 22% two decades ago. In the same article I mentioned earlier, this excerpt struck with me. In 2022, a full-time worker needs to earn an hourly wage of $26 on average to afford a modest two-bedroom rental home in the United States. This Housing wage for a two-bedroom home is $19 higher than the federal minimum wage of $7.25. In just 11 states and the District of Columbia, the two-bedroom housing wage is at least $26 per hour. One of the ways to ease this shockingly large gap is, of course, to build more housing. In this episode of American Building, I am sharing an edited version of the conversation I had in June 2021 with Marianne Gilmartin, who is arguably the most powerful woman in commercial real estate in America today. She is the CEO of Mag Partners, a woman-owned, urban-focused real estate development company based in New York City. She previously was the interim CEO at MacCalley Realty, one of the country's largest residential real estate investment trusts, which is now called Varus Residential. She started her career at Forest City Ratner, eventually rising to the role of president and CEO. Marianne is a graduate of Fordham University. We talked about 241 West 28th Street, a new construction, mixed-income, multifamily rental building in the Chelsea neighborhood of Manhattan. It was in construction then and is now nearing completion and includes 144 affordable housing units that are financed through the New York City Inclusionary Housing Program and the 421A tax abatement. The building has gone to market with the name Ruby. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much for being here with us, Marianne. That's my pleasure. So many of our listeners are in college and graduate school and the path there to leadership roles in our industry can seem to be an impossibly long one. When you look back, what were the the pivot points where you saw your career accelerate and take off? I'll start by saying, I think while we all need a plan, the most important thing to remember is we all need to be prepared to have our plan upended, leave space for the role of serendipity. So I was an urban fellow and had the ability to go into public development under Ed Koch the city's only recruitment tool really to, to draw young people into government before they headed to the private sector. I knew nothing about real estate. I was on my way to law school and I couldn't even, even describe what a real estate developer did. And I interviewed with all the commissioners because you were able to be hired directly by a commissioner, unfettered access to the commissioner's office and city hall. So it was a great gig, but I really didn't believe that I would be doing anything other than fighting for the rights of juveniles in the justice system. And I stepped into the role, into the offices of economic development, and I thought to myself, this is so grown up. There's a president, 
there's a board of directors, there's carpeting, air conditioning. The city was quite a harsh place in the in the late 80s. And because I had two fellowships, I, I actually was just extremely practical. And I said, I'll spend the summer trying something I don't know anything about. And then in September, I will take my second fellowship and I'll, I'll devote it to juvenile justice. And it was there that I was thrown into a career that I realized I had a passion for. I realized I had real estate in my veins. And I realized it was the most incredible job because you had uh, access to so many facets of what it takes to make a place, to change a skyline, and to create a ground plane. And so for me, if I had a plan and I wasn't willing to disrupt my plan, I wouldn't be here speaking to you today Mm -hmm. about my career. And so I would encourage everyone to be open to the possibility that sometimes the answers to life are really outside the box, right? Not, Not in the box we live in day after day. The other thing I'd say is I would always vote for a great mentor and great access to a pipeline of opportunity over some big brand name. So for example, if you could work with a fine mentor, somebody who you respect, who's going to give you access to their time and their craft, I would vote for that any day over a bigger company with a bigger portfolio and a bigger balance sheet where you're just a cog in a wheel. So I think you really should follow people because it really takes great people to do great things and you have to be inside of a great organization and organizations are great because they're defined by the people that make them great and so i believe in mentoring and i believe that the rookie has a lot to offer so for young people listening i think you want to be someplace where they value the rookie because uh, again you're bringing a perspective and a lens that is unique and different and young and fresh and if you're not in an organization that sees value in that I think it's somewhat problematic for the mm. career trajectory of someone young and ambitious. That's so interesting that you say that because in terms of awards and recognition or industry, it often feels that the it's this lone wolf at the top of the, the pyramid or the top of the team that's responsible for everything from the financing to laying the bricks in the building. And the reality is exactly like you described. There are many, many, many people. So let me ask you this. The amazing company that Bruce Ratner built and the one that you continue to build as CEO, you eventually left. Why did you leave and what was that thought process like? 23 years. The proudest part of my role there was we really moved from commoditized building to quality design. I'm really proud of the fact that we were able to build a building like Barclays Center, but I never, ever look past the fact that when I go up the escalator at Barclays Center, I look at the party city neon sign reflecting from Atlantic Center into Barclays Center, realizing that we built that building too. Those two buildings right across the street from each other represent for me the the evolution and the arc of the company in terms of where it was when I started there and where it was when I decided it was time for me to leave. The decision to leave was a tough one. I had become the CEO in 2013. I was on my sixth year of being the CEO. It was the most amazing experience I'd ever had. And as I said, challenging in that I stepped into Bruce Ratner's shoes. And you have to know, as your audience will know, if they if they followed the work that Forest City did, it always said Bruce C. Ratner. Any article about the company would start with Bruce C. Ratner. Even when we bought the Nets and moved them to Brooklyn, it was always on behalf of the company. Bruce was such a cult of personality that the article always started with him. He was larger than life. And then somewhere buried in the middle of the piece, you'd learn about Forest City. So I thought, well, <laughs> over this company, like it's not even, it's going to be a headless horseman or rudderless ship because Bruce is no longer the president and CEO. But truth be told, we had an incredible transition plan. He stayed on as the chair. So I had the great benefit of having him down the hall in the corner office. But the company had been operating as a public company, non-REIT. 
for many, many years, since 1968. So they went to the public markets for their money, but they weren't a real estate investment trust. And we were one of one. Just no company was operating that way. It was a vestige of a time gone by. And so really the family had a lot of control over the board and the decision-making. That fell out of favor as REITs became more, more professional and independent. But I was 23 years in ready to go raise my own money and build projects because I believed in them, not because I thought an analyst on a call was going to say it was okay. Yeah. I think that that path then from there to MAG Partners is what brings you to the project that we'll be talking about today. So I want to focus on Chelsea. So our listeners from the New York area will will know Chelsea very well. It's a very popular neighborhood in Manhattan. For, For those that aren't from New York City, could you tell us a bit more about Chelsea, it says masonry buildings, it has also has nondescript apartment blocks, it has public housing. There's a lot of things that are going on in this neighborhood that that impact what you are able to do on this site. Tell us about the neighborhood and the site and, and how those two intertwine. Sure. The West Chelsea of today is very different than the West Chelsea of 20 years ago. And so neighborhood that's gone through extraordinary change. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's it's an unbelievably diverse neighborhood in terms of its building types, right? But it's still garment center, rich contextual buildings that are masonry. And then flanking west, you had Hudson Yards building these giant edifices of um, of steel and glass. And so West Chelsea became a combination of things, a place that tech really wanted to be post Google purchasing. 8th Avenue, 111 8th Avenue, and suddenly you saw an explosion of tech talent and the creative class. And that creative class not only wanted to work there, but they wanted to play there, they wanted to live there. And so you saw new restaurants and you saw the advent of new types of residential buildings. And so I think in West Chelsea, you can find a very eclectic talent base and employment base and building types for residential communities. And what we really were drawn to is that the idea of building near Hudson Yards was, was attractive to me just because we didn't want to build anything like what you find at Hudson Yards uh, or on, <laughs> on the avenues. Even if you think about what the 6th Avenue quarters and 7th Avenue quarters started to look like from a multifamily point of view, we were drawn to the mid-block, two-tower, 22-story scheme where it really feels like home. And so, you know, people have coveted this site and had coveted the site for a very long time because it was a parking lot owned by the Edison family, directly from FIT. But again, in in the hub, in the center of all of this amazing activity. So it's always a buzz. It's always alive with energy, whether it's the Monday through Friday or on the weekends. And so we knew it was a winning location because whether it was the the office rents or the residential rents, they were all on the upswing. At the same time, you have Penn South, which is one of the most successful co-ops around the corner where people who live at Penn South between 26th and 29th Street, between 8th and 9th Avenues, own all of the land, going back to JFK when he decided that this was a model for affordable housing and created a cooperative for people to be able to afford to live in New York City and to live well mm-hmm. and to live through generations. So you have Penn South directly around the corner, yet you have rents that pierce the $100 a square foot mark in the residential space. So we knew that its strength was its diversity, its building types were, you know, you favored the more modest kind of, not the tower schemes, but the but the lower rise entering from 28th or 29th Street with an amazing courtyard in between. So we knew we could build the kind of building that people would want to live in. We also knew that we were sitting across from FIT near NYU 
in a place where if you chose to build a very young building, you could do. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we were attracted by this idea that you could have a kind of a young vibe in the building, but you could also attract young families and young couples that would make it sort of altogether interesting because it would be almost a microcosm of what West Chelsea really is. So for us, the site, not easy to get our myths on it. We had to convince the Edison ownership to give us 120 days to come to them with a proposed transaction. We were fortunate because it was a ground lease. This was not a family that wanted to sell it off. They learned early on back in their days in Jersey that you should never sell. And so taught by the great patriarch, they knew that they should always hold their interests in the land, which meant that condominiums were not possible. And for, for us, we didn't want to build condos. That's a that's a kind of a, a moment in time where you cash out if you're lucky and you, you end up you know having some troubles if, if you don't hit the market at the right time. So the, the hangover of condominiums in New York when we started this project um, made it very unattractive for us to build condos. But because they wanted a ground lease, it had to be priced for multifamily because that's all you could really justify building. The biggest challenge is you can't build multifamily in some of the most amazing neighborhoods in New York because all of the land is priced for condos and just don't pencil out. So we found ourselves with something quite sweet, which is an ability to deliver 480 units with economics that allowed us to build the multifamily. But at the same time, there was 3,000 total units coming to the market in the three-year horizon that we were studying from construction commencement to completion. And you mean 3,000 for the whole island of Manhattan or just a particular part? Submarket. So you have okay, got highest performing submarket next to one other in, in Manhattan. You have a limited amount of new supply. You've got a mid-block location with a two-tower scheme, entrances on, on two different uh, vibrant streets. So everything was was looking dandy and, and super successful. Our capital was primed to, to fund. The loan was on the brink of being closed and the pandemic hit. And that's the, when you hit the gong and it's like, oh my God. <laughs> And then it became really kind of binary. It became just a, a binary question of, do you believe in New York? Do you think New York's going to come back? And, you know, for me, I read all of the obituaries that have been written about New York over and over again through many cycles and many crises. But it wasn't just what I thought, right? It was the, the three capital partners and the lender. So the lender that we had teed up, you know, ready to close, disappeared. The lender said, we love this project. We love the sponsorship. We would get thrown out of investment committee if we walked in and asked for a $173 million loan to build a building ground up in West Chelsea in the middle of the pandemic. And our partners said, should we take a step back? Should we put it on pause? And we went on this you know, heavily data-driven exercise to demonstrate that if we built the building as planned and started last November as scheduled, that we would come out of the ground at the right time when very little was being built. We would stabilize this building when very little was being brought online and we would be through the pandemic. We didn't necessarily have the transparency into the vaccine at the time because the vaccines weren't approved yet. But we just felt as if we were going to bet on the fact that the horizon to build a building, you know, gave us the liberty to ignore some of the near term challenges and just dial back the rent, not grow the rent for a few years so they could climb out of the hole that, you know, the pandemic put it in and recover quite nicely. This would otherwise have been the most straightforward single residential tower on a block in a mid-block area in Manhattan where you do not have extreme circumstances. And it, lo and behold, became as challenging as the 10 years it took us to have a single vertical building coming out of Barclay Center, in large part because the pandemic made it impossible to get the funds lined up for the loan. And without the loan, there was no loan. 
So it sounds like it's either you find the tough projects or the tough projects find you. It's one way or the other, right? I, I think I aid in the bet. You know, I find <laughs> gravitational pull toward the complexity. And of course, I'm not interested in doing a single info block. You know, I really like, and also it's a differentiator, right? Because the complex stuff, a lot of people run for the hills. And so exactly. complexity, I see opportunity. Like ground leases, people say, you can't build multifamily on a ground lease. You can never get it financed. The success we had on 28th Street really led to the invitation from Penn South to build the 8th Avenue site. And ultimately, there are thousands of people that had to opine on our fitness and our partnering skills. So when the when new residents of the building walk through, talk to us about what they're seeing in the lobby, in the courtyards, the hallways, on the way to their apartment. What does this look and what does this feel? What is that experience going to be like? So first, it's going to be contextual. So one of the things that we we love to recognize is we're going to be building a building on 50th and 2nd Avenue on the Upper East Side. And that's going to be a different kind of a building with a different architect because it's a different place. And in the great neighborhoods that make up New York City, you really need to understand the context. And so this Mm -hmm. building will look and feel as if it belongs in West Chelsea. Really proud of that. And all of the details that were developed with Rick Cook and his team were super respectful of the history of that area. And so the masonry building has you know, a beautiful, beautiful wall. There are unbelievable details on the brick and on the windows that will make it visually pleasing. It does have an abundance of outdoor space and open space. And again, we designed all this pre-COVID. If you said to me, one of the major swings that you introduced because of COVID, I think it actually reinforced a direction we thought the industry was going, which is the importance of, of high design and quality, a flight to quality, if you will, whether building commercial or residential. This idea that wellness is important and people want to live and work in healthy buildings, mm. that light and air matter. So for example, we have the daylight quarter. We, we basically designed around the ability to introduce light into the quarters and the hallways. So when you get off the elevator, you know where the sky is and you feel the light in your in your home. Transparency, the fact that this lobby runs through uh, 28th to 29th Street, the fact that you come upon an outdoor a courtyard that separates the two towers and that, that that is a very welcoming space for everyone. On the top of the building overlooking at a very interesting level, we have an outdoor pool which really excited about on one tower. And then we have, you know, barbecue space, outdoor space, and leisure space on the tops of both of the of the towers. So I think it's a very livable building. It's got a very human scale because it's not a tower, kind of a, a soulless tower. It's got mm-hmm. transparency. You know, the wall is not a tinted uh, wall system, lots of light. And now when it comes to what's changed through the pandemic is just this idea that you can enter the lobby and go all the way up to your home and really never touch anything. So through your phone, you can call the elevator, you can open your front door and you can get your mail. So it's highly amenitized. We have about 8,000 square feet of retail, which we will not put a big number on in terms of rent because we believe very strongly that that square footage makes an enormous impact on the way the building really lands in the community. And it's all about the amenities to people that live in the building. So it'll be food, it'll be services, it'll be a focus on health and wellness, and there'll be lots of bike space and amenity space to work out and to stay healthy. And I think it'll be a really high-performing building. It'll be one of the first buildings post-COVID. If you know mm-hmm. Cook's work, biophilia is a big, big deal for him. So you'll see lots of greenery, a lots of attention by the architect and the design team in the selection of the, the green inside and outside the courtyard. 
So the fact that a lot of the aspects that you brought up that are, are natural and well-being related are tied to this desire for biophilic design in the building. For people that might hear that and sort of like roll their eyes or be like, ugh, or a sigh, could you talk about besides the data of the reasons why these are good ideas, what was the emotional thing that that convinced you to say, yes, this is what we're doing, as opposed to, no, we're not going to waste X, Y, Z, and we're just going to do things the normal, the normal way? One of the biggest reasons for doing it is just to visit Rick's office. I mean, what he has done with his own, you know, sometimes your own space becomes your best testimonial for what matters. Excellent. And what he's done with his own office and how he has incorporated biophilia in his, his space and his gardens outside of his internal demise is nothing short of extraordinary. And it's a building on 57th Street. And not a lot of architects would like be drawn to 57th Street. But again, the tender mm-hmm. care and feeding that he put into his own space, he demonstrated almost a proof of concept by building his space the way that he likes to build other spaces for clients. And so when buildings, particularly your home, can offer that, it absolutely has you know, a positive impact on your well-being. Now sustainability is like one step above breaking the law. And we're, we talk about resiliency because buildings should be resilient. They really should be contributing to saving the environment, not just not destroying it. And so I think what I believe about the generation that really represents your generation and the people probably listening to this podcast is that really matters it matters where things are sourced it matters what it took to build the place they call home it matters the climate and the future of the climate for folks in your generation and so we're building really in some ways i mean i don't want to sound so high and mighty it's a lot of it is 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 necessary really to meet the market to where the market wants to be and i think that what it particularly is is do you choose the path of cynicism or do you choose the path of change and opportunity and potential? From my experience as a developer, the intrinsic nature of a developer is one who looks for opportunity. And it seems like a no-brainer to me. And I think what I've come to realize as well, and correct me if this is what, what you're thinking you're underwriting, is that you're actually getting a premium on your rents. It's not just doing it. You're likely going to get a faster lease-up and higher rents. Is that what your, your hypothesis is as well? By doing good, you're doing well. And I think that it definitely pencils out. And, you know, sometimes it is a proof of concept that proves it. But in the end of the day, I do think that it's a marginal cost in terms of what it takes to do it this way. It does create more timeless buildings and a better investment all around. This whole notion of flight to quality, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to break out on my own is that I wanted to build beautiful buildings and demonstrate that those buildings deliver great value to the partners, to the investors, right? But also to the communities in which we build. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to build buy in with people that look like the communities we build in. And so this is yeah. like so simple, like, of course, that's the way it should be. Well, it turns out in our industry, as you know, particularly in New York, it's not that way. It's the usual suspects building commoditized product, unless it's a condo and somebody's going to come along and plop $15 million down and take it off your hands. What about this idea of long-term value creation through building beauty. And so it started with, you know, once you build something with Renzo Piano, you actually can't go back and build commoditized stuff. You just can't because mm-hmm. you look at the, the the work so differently. And not everybody, you don't have to have Renzo Piano. You just, when, when you're building beauty and you're thinking through every detail, you're not just putting a commoditized building up. 
it's an imperative. It's not even an option to, to do it differently mm-hmm. once you go through that process. One, you recognize the value. You've convinced the partners, the lenders, and the people who live and work there that it's all worth it. And so once you go through that process, you just would never turn it around and go back and do it a different way. It just doesn't make any sense. Thanks for joining me today on American Building. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe on your favorite listening app and don't forget to rate and review. And friends, I've teamed up with writers for the New York Times and Dwell Magazine to launch a digital media platform to tell the fascinating stories of the impact developers and capital providers I work with at Commonplace. Check it out at commonplace.us.